Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You are about to hear the recording of a live conversation. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm Tele, and uh, welcome to another episode of Tibet Talks. I'm Benji Gatzel with International Campaign for Tibet. Delighted uh, to be back as your host for this uh, discussion with an author whose debut novel has become an international bestseller and has been longlisted for the Center for Fiction's first novel prize. Some of the words used in describing her work are haunting, powerful, stirring, breathtaking, masterful, wildly beautiful, symphonic. Uh, the book provides an intimate glimpse into the experience of Tibetan exiles as it follows three generations of a Tibetan family over a span of, of over 50 years, beginning as they are forced to leave their homeland uh, following China's occupation of Tibet. In the book is, we measure the earth with our bodies, and our guest is uh, Tsiring Yangzun Lama. Please join me to uh, welcome Tsiring Lama. Hello Tsiring Lama. Hello, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Um, I have had so many requests uh, to have you for our Tibet talks, so uh, thank you for making uh, time to join us. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here today. Um, and thank you to everybody who's uh, joined us as well. Thank you. And uh, for our viewers, uh, we will be taking a few questions uh, from our audience watching today. Uh, Tila, I'll begin with a few questions to you, and then uh, I'm going to also invite some of our ICT readers to join and ask you their questions. Um, so to begin, I wanted to, first of all, I feel like everybody uh, knows your name, but not really much about um, who you are. So may I kind of ask you to share a little bit about your background a little, and uh, who you are and um, perhaps how you got into writing? Sure. Um, so I was born in Nepal. Um, my my parents and grandparents uh, were from Western Tibet, uh, from Ngari. And uh, so I was born in Kathmandu in the mid 80s and had a very, I'd say a very like wonderful childhood. <laughs> um, pretty innocent of like all of the history and the the hardships and the politics, pretty sheltered. But my my parents and my older siblings had lived in uh, a refugee camp, um, in several refugee camps in Nepal, and I had never lived in one of those uh, camps, but I regularly visited um, relatives there. And it wasn't until I immigrated to Canada with my family uh, in the mid-90s, I was 12 years old, that's Really, I would say when I became politically awakened and became an activist with Students Work Free Tibet, became national director of the Canadian office. And in that time was also when I really became interested in writing. I'd always read growing up in Nepal, but um, that was really something that was nurtured by my father, my late father, uh, who was a big reader. Uh, he would read Tolstoy, Chinese philosophers, and a lot of Buddhist uh, masters as well. So our, our house was full of books and we would often go to bookstores together. Um, but it didn't occur to me that I could be a writer until I moved to Canada and started taking creative writing courses. And also, so it was kind of a dual awakening, I guess, uh, politically and also 
in terms of literature um, and uh, wanting to be part of producing literature as opposed to just uh, consuming it. And then I did my master's in fine arts uh, in New York 12 years ago. And that's also when I began writing this novel. Thank you. So when I read your book, you know, I um, I, was, I, uh, I didn't know who you were. So as I was reading it, I was thinking um, the writer must be somebody uh, of my generation or my age who's kind of lived this experience because I felt um, you wrote it with the um, insider's view and that uh, so I wanted to ask uh, can you share a little bit of your research and how did you dig so deep into making uh, to understanding that time period and your journey of writing? Thank you for saying that I mean I think a big part of my process was like anxiety about how this would be received, especially by Tibetans who've actually lived through a lot of this history that I'm trying to capture here. Um, and so because I was nervous about doing this kind of work, I think I spent a lot longer on research perhaps, try to make sure that I did my due diligence, even though it's a work of fiction and it's, you know, a lot of it is imaginative. Um, it is a history in a sense. So I felt the responsibility to try to get it as correctly as I could. So I did a few things. One, I, you know, having sort of grown up in the Tibetan community, there's just a lifetime of absorbing people's stories and personalities and seeing little glimpses of things that, you know, always stayed with me. So there were these little stories that I'd heard from family members and relatives about those early days, just little tiny things that I filled in the, the, the rest and I sort of tried to expand on. And then I found photographs of that period online uh, of the 60s and 70s, really, really just the very beginning of the exile period when people had almost nothing and they were just wandering around the streets and you know building a refugee camp with literally stones that they're breaking and digging, weaving bamboo together and creating ropes. So seeing these photographs and seeing the difficult terrain um, that people were trying to forge new lives on. That was really important. I spent a lot of time looking at those photographs, trying to describe what I was seeing um, and trying to imagine what it was like to be in that time and place. I also read some uh, reports from NGOs, uh, Red Cross and such, that were describing the conditions of the camps. Um, you know, having one bowl of rice a day per person, giving out vitamin pills to help children that were suffering from like dysentery and all kinds of other illnesses. Just these things were really important to fulfill, um, fill in the world. And I was also looking at photographs of Nepal at the time to see what the roads look like. So there, it was sort of a mishmash, I guess, is what I'm saying. Um, a part of it is that, you know, there isn't a ton of history written about this period, especially the refugee experience. It's, I guess it hasn't been the priority, um, especially in, in English. Uh, there might be a lot more in Tibetan. And then the other part of my research uh, involved a lot of uh, scholarly uh, sort of research, just being in the stacks of, like, of different libraries and reading as much as I could. The third part was I actually did travel to Dharamsala to the CTA uh, grounds to walk around and Guchung Sonamla, who's a poet and a translator and a publisher, he took me and he showed me the original buildings, like the first buildings. And I was really sort of struck by the humility of, of these places, they're, you know, really just like brick buildings that are sort of dilapidated now, but to think of like 
losing everything and trying to build a new country again <laughs> with this one building was quite moving. And I also traveled to the border. So there was just travel, reading, listening, and then trying to stare at photographs I found online. Overall, how long did it is was the uh, book? Uh... The process, um, it took about 10 years to write. Um, and uh, we sold it, uh, you know, yeah, at the end of 10 years. And then there were additional two years of editing and production, publishing things. So whole thing from beginning to end was 12 years. Now, I know our viewers would be interested. Uh, not everybody's read your book. So could you please um, read a passage? And, uh, the viewers can get a sense of your storytelling and your and the sense of the book. So <clears throat> I'm going to read just a, a three pages from about 200 pages into the novel. This is just from one of the four characters, uh, Tanki. She's been in Delhi where she was studying and she has returned to her camp in Nepal because she's had a, sort of a mental crisis essentially. Um, and this is her returning home to try to heal. In that time, my mind kept slipping away like a fish between my hands. Ashamed of my state, I returned to the camp in the middle of the night so no one would see. My sister was waiting at her doorway with a blanket. The next day, light stung my skin and blurred my vision, so I closed every window. Because I could not sleep anymore, I sat on the edge of my bed most nights. Then I began to see the ghost of my childhood, the woman with a mouth she could not open, shaking her head and gritting her teeth in rage. She wanted to speak but could not say a word, and yet sudden sounds of wailing would come to me. I could feel Delhi clinging to my skin, a thick film neither I nor my sister could scrub away. On days I had more energy, I stood before a mirror and picked my skin, wanting to find the lip of the film. I dug and dug until my skin bled. Other days, my body fell into a static posture, my hands on my thighs, my back hunched. I was barely breathing. I felt my future was hopeless, my present pointless. Thankfully, Tashi was gone at the time. My sister cried a great deal in those days, but it took me a long time to understand that she was crying about me. She was begging me to tell her what had happened. You know, I told her. Everyone does. They've known all along, and that's why they watch me day and night. That's why they talk about me and laugh, falling silent when I pass by. What do you mean? What do they know about you, she asked. They see who I am, a shattered woman that everyone avoids, an undying ghost among the living. Then the idea came to me, a shock of wisdom that would surely save me. I would circle the camp monastery, prostrating myself the whole way, Circumambulating the holy place, I would kill my old self and bring a new self to life. 108 times, I would prostrate around the monastery, 108. Sacred number, the number of beads in a rosary. In complete darkness, I walked across the camp to the monastery. Clasping my hands before my chest, I lifted my hands to the sky and back to my chest. I knelt on the ground, slid my body down. I stretched my hands as far as they could go clasped them again in prayer, and pressed the ground with my fingertip. Rising, I stepped up to the indent in the earth, where my fingers had reached, and repeated the steps. The first circumambulation was quick. I could do this, I thought. 
I can be reborn. In the single night, I can wash everything away, return to a pure beam of light, an idea in my mother's womb. All suffering could end with my labor. Voices filled my head, laughing in joy, astounded by my brilliance. All around me they spun, round and round. The rain fell and I spun too, my arms reaching out to the world, to all the stars that came out to witness what I had discovered. Dance, I cried. Let's dance for a minute. The stars danced with me. This must have been the year His Holiness was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize because the monastery was washed in fresh paint. Soon, I thought, I must send a message to His Holiness so that he can tell the Nobel Committee about my discovery. Even a single, sorry, even a simple woman in a refugee camp in Nepal could come up with something so important. What a glorious message, an incandescent message that will liberate everyone even his holiness, who labors without end for all beings. When I woke up, shivering naked in bed, I was once again in my sister's house. She had piled every blanket on my body. I could not move, and I didn't have the strength to try either. Outside, the celebrations had begun. It was as if a great wall of running water divided my world from theirs. Water roared between my fears. I should have brought this to you long ago, Atta said. Standing on the foot of the bed, she reached into the rafters and pulled out a small metal box. I watched with disbelief as she brought the box to the table and pulled out the nameless saint. While I, know, while I, while I asked how this was possible, Ajahnamo placed the Ku's base on my head and said a prayer in the same way Amma had done long ago. I felt my entire body loosen and surrender. Did you feel that? I whispered. Whatever it is, accept it, my sister said. Something flitted in the light behind Ajahnamo. It was the sky shifting. Clouds were gathering in the doorway, rumbling for me. There's going to be a storm, I said, looking out and smiling. I could sense that my mother was nearby, and she would teach me something. She would show me how to weather the storm. There is no storm, my sister said, her voice faint behind the wall of water. Past my sister, a golden branch swayed in the wind, covered with radiant leaves. It swung down and shielded me from all the rain and hail that was about to fall, with nothing to fear with nothing to weigh us down. Sister and I began to rise from our heels, from our hips, up and off the bed, until our toes wiggled in the air. I looked at the mountains so far away, shining sunlight in the direction of home, and I decided to take us there. I grasped my sister's hand and took her with me toward the silver tips of the mountains. I pulled her north until the peaks were at our feet, and all we needed to do was step over them. From there, we saw our village, our house, our parents. From there, we could see our mother through the kitchen window. At last, I whispered, fell into a deep and yielding sleep. Thank you, Sarah. Mm. That was beautiful. Thank you. And uh, now I'm going to bring our um, readers uh, here. I want to invite uh, my friends who have been reading this book, your book, um, so that uh, join in the conversation here. We have. Ashton from Maine, we have Dijana from uh, Minnesota, Gadak from Boston, Lausanne from uh, New York, and then Leslie, my colleague from the upstairs office <laughs> above me. So we have uh, all of you here. Um, I am going to turn over to Dijana for the first question. Uh, 
It's a pleasure to meet you and congratulations on this wonderful triumph of a novel. It's it's uh, brilliant, it's wonderful. And I really liked that um, the book, the whole story is about ordinary Tibetans. So I think that really struck me uh, because most of the books that we have are uh, written by or uh, written about the Tibetans in authority. And there are not a lot of stories about how ordinary Tibetans lived through the tragedy and how that trauma comes about in their lives and their children's life. So it was very wonderful to read it and feeling heard, which is really important for, for us Tibetans. And um, in the book, the thing that most resonated with me was Doma's character. Uh, there was this one particular scene where she was invited to a gathering, like a party by one of her professors. And um, she noticed how she felt how different she was from the rest of the academics that were in, present in the room, especially the air of confidence with which the others carry themselves, but she doesn't have that. And I really feel that because I am uh, uh, doing uh, uh, my uh, studies. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate, so I am in the academia myself. And this confidence does not come up really easily. And sometimes you feel out of place. And I think it takes a lot of time and effort to get comfortable in the skin and feel that you have earned this place and you can do this. So it was very inspiring to see myself portrayed in the Doma's character in the book and you know, be like, oh, this is, this is something I can resonate with. And um, as it happens, that's the place where Doma also meets the neighboring saint that she has heard about throughout her childhood, but has never seen one. And that actually triggered a lot of thoughts um, in me because we Tibetans live our lives. We have a set of goals you know, to achieve. We have a vision for our uh, career trajectories, just like any other person on this earth. And uh, so we are busy living our lives. But the nameless saint is that thought in our subconscious mind that says, great job on this milestone. But how can you translate these achievements to the cause of Tibet? Like, what are, what are you doing for, the, for our fight at the end of the day? So this thought... Um, actually doesn't really sit in our mind every second of the day, but it finds its way to the surface every now and then. And it's just like how the nameless saint appears only during the time of the need. So that's how, when I was reading the book, that's how I interpreted the nameless saint, the dependentness of the Tibetan people while living their own lives. So I'm just curious about your thoughts on the nameless saint and what it signifies to you. Well, first of all, thank you for that. I mean, I think it's really wonderful that you connected um, and that uh, Doma resonated with you um, since you're in this world. The nameless saint, um, yeah, he can mean so many things. And I think a, a big part of it is that connection to that, uh, which is, it can feel like, a, <laughs> it can feel like a burden sometimes for like Doma. She's like, why did I have to see this nameless saint? I was on my way to you know, talking to these academics and maybe, you know, pursuing that thing that I wanted to do. And now I'm like, I have to do something about this nameless saint that was stolen. Um, and I have no choice in, in the matter in a sense. And uh, at the same time, it's it's a connection to a world and a, and, and a, and a family and a camp and a past that, you know, she's just kind of stunned to be able to see, you know, there's a there's a way in which um, Tibet is is this idea this really unreachable place that is mythic and massive in our minds and yet unattainable and then to see something from Tibet that is centuries old that is in front of you that is almost you can almost grasp it 
um, and, and yet you can't. Uh, you know, it requires her to sort of break the rules. And I guess for me, the nameless saint in that sense is, is kind of a way to talk about how cruel the world is and how nonsensical all of these rules are um, about what's right and what's wrong, what's ours and what's not ours, you know, what, we, what we can claim and we can't claim. Um, and even like Samfel, the, uh, the person who deals in these antiques, I wanted to sort of use the nameless saint as a way to um, complicate the notions of, you know, morality or like uh, what is a good person, you know, is, is theft bad? Can theft be justified? So the nameless saint is, in a sense, our entire civilization, um, not just in the object, but in the placement of the object, like how it makes visible the cruel conditions uh, that we're all in. Um, and the laughability, like how laughable it is to have really simple answers uh, to that or morality. The fact that this nameless saint is sitting on a desk in Toronto in a party is like that disorientation or that um, almost that how un, un, like not sensible it is. Like you don't expect it. That's, I feel like, I feel that all the time as a Tibetan, all the time. I'm like, this doesn't make sense to me that this is happening in Tibet or this has happened to somebody I know. And yet it is completely decontextualized or completely not even thought about in the environment that I'm in. And that sort of disorientation uh, is, is a part of it. The Nameless Saint also to me is about like magic and <laughs> Tibetan sort of ideas that uh, no longer have a place in this world that I, that I think we should still insist on having a place in this world. I think a lot of people, some some Westerners who read the book have said to me like, oh, is this real? Does, can this actually happen? Or do people actually believe this? And I'm like, yeah, you know, like a lot of Tibetans have stories of statues and like magical things like this happening, actually. Like even friends who read the book have said, oh, you know, we have something like this. Or when I told my mother about it, she was, uh, I sort of told her the story and she thought that it was real and I said I made it up and she's like well this, this type kind of stuff does happen and which is the terma practice you know the terma tradition of these texts that appear and disappear so the nameless saint is a terma in 21st century in my mind um, a terma that passed through the hands of Tibetan refugees and was taken to the west and then is potentially reclaimed so I guess it's a long way of saying it's it's what you're saying but and it's also you know about a lot of different things that I uh, find to be hard to explain or talk about, about our conditions. I think it's hearing line, and, and I resonate a lot with what you said about the magical part. And in your book, I think the first line itself, Ama was an oracle, is like, I think that encompasses the magical part of the whole novel. So it was brilliant. Um, thank you so much. And congrats once again for this beautiful novel. And um, Lo Sang La will continue with our questions now. Especially Yangzongla. Uh, hello, viewers. I think uh, I speak for most of our Tibetan readers when I say that uh, this is a book that we as a community deeply resonate with. Personally, for me, I've always wanted to read a book like this when I was growing up as a kid in exile in Nepal. And I feel like the book uh, perfectly captures the many different aspects of the Tibetan exile experience and the intergenerational trauma 
that comes being uh, comes with being uprooted from one's homeland. My question to you today, Yang Zunla, is uh, on the representation of uh, misrepresentation of Tibetans and uh, the Tibet political situation in uh, academia and in media. Uh, the conversation between Professor Horowitz and Doma particularly uh, struck me because she points out. Uh, points out his um, reluctance to admit his authority and his power to shape the discourse around Tibet and his rationalization of Tibet's occupation, which is really unfair. And uh, I'm just curious to know what made you write about that? And uh, is it inspired from your own experience in academia? And how do you think we should tackle this problem as a community? Thank you, Rosalind. That's a great question, and um, I mean, all the questions have been great so far. I, I, I have, I have to say that um, the Doma section was was inspired by my early years in university. This was, you know, before two thousand eight. So, you know, I, I remember there was a phrase that a lot of scholars, that scholars, were using uh, at the time, which was, "It's the tail wagging the dog." Uh, that Tibetans in exile were protesting, and we're the tail, and we're wagging the dog, meaning like we're making all this noise, but we have no idea what Tibetans inside Tibet feel. And uh, it was a really disempowering framing of our uh, sort of struggle and our connection to Tibetans inside Tibet, because it would assume like that we don't know what's going on in Tibet, and that scholars actually know, and they have more authority and more more of a basis to speak for the condition of the, the struggle or our, our, our people. And um, at the time I was a pretty, you know, pretty fiery activist um, and, uh, you know, uh, wanted to, to talk about the Tibetan cause. And time and again, I would find uh, people in places of authority saying to me that, you know, implying and saying directly as well, that I had no basis to speak essentially. And I think what's happened since then uh, you know, with the Olympic, the, the protests around the Olympics, which clearly showed across all of historical Tibet, Tibetans were rising up and had uh, a deep desire for freedom, and they hadn't forgotten their history, even if they'd never seen a free Tibet, they still were struggling against occupation, and they considered it an occupation, um, and still had loyalty to His Holiness. I think that really was quite a shock to some of these scholars, and since then, I think there's been so much discourse uh, in, in broader academia and in, in sort of activist spaces uh, around, um, I guess, decolonizing narratives about uh, about people, right? Like people who don't have, has, have not had historically like the, the, the space or the uh, ability to be heard. And so it's heartening now to think that we now have the language more so than in the past to push back against these really I guess colonial sort of mindsets, even from like Western academics, um, that are really disempowering, really unfair, and ultimately serve uh, our oppressors. Um, so it's really, really important that that's happening. And I know Tibetans inside of academia are also pushing on that, and things are slowly changing for the better, which I great. Yeah, but I think that's still a big issue. <laughs> I mean, Tibetans, I think, are we're sort of caught between two difficult things. Like, we're caught between the Chinese government's occupation and oppression of our people, 
And so we, we need to appeal to sort of like Western values and Western supporters. And at the same time, we also need to, in a sense, stand up for uh, ourselves and our voice within this Western space, right? And that's happening more broadly with other movements, um, you know, demanding equal space, equal voice. But I think, you know, we, we're not fighting just on one, one front in a sense, <laughs> um, which, is, which is a difficult thing for any, any, any community to do. But we do need to challenge and push back and, and insist on uh, decolonizing uh, as a whole practice in, in how the Tibetan struggle uh, works and how Tibet is discussed. So I think we're still figuring that out. I'm writing really here from the experience of the early 2000s. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it really does. And thank you so much for the answer. And I think it's a, it's, uh, it's a very crucial topic and I'm so glad that you uh, wrote about it in your book. And thank you so much. I'll pa pass it on to Ashton. I found your book very powerful. It brought back so many pictures of my two years in Joalakel in the 60s, teaching Tibetan children. I think the emotional aspects in your book were overwhelming at times, particularly the sense of loss and longing. And I wonder how difficult that must have been for you to write. Thank you, Ashton. I'd love to hear more about your experience in the 60s in Jalakia, actually. Um, I, I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot more that uh, folks who are around then, and I've actually been, uh, I've spoken to another person who also was uh, volunteering at a Tibetan refugee camp, Okra. I think there's so much that could be learned from uh, your stories um, as well. How difficult was it? It was, it was, um, it was difficult. I think there's the biggest difficulty for me was sort of my imposter syndrome. Like, do I have a right to do this? Can I do this well? Can you know? Am I gonna, am I gonna make a big mistake or lots of mistakes? And I think I worried about it pretty much up until publication day and throughout. <laughs> so for, wow. for 10 plus years, I had these concerns and I really uh, did not want to, and um, you know, I know it's a work of fiction, but I, I felt that responsibility to portray things as accurately as possible from the perspective of my characters. What was difficult for me was, well, I guess one thing is, you know, um, we don't really talk that often uh, in, in my experience about trauma or like about whether or not we're doing okay. <laughs> um, I think there's this study that was circulated about how Tibetans are the most successful refugees, uh, how like we are really good at like not experiencing trauma because of Buddhism. And I think that could be true. And I can see that uh, resilience in a lot of people I know, but I don't think that that's the full story. And I don't think that, you know, Tibetans are a monolith in any sense, like any other people we have all kinds of experiences and all kinds of people. And even within an individual, we can experience both resilience uh, and like sort of Buddhist equanimity and also extreme trauma that we barely recognize in ourselves, but we can see the effects of, or we can see the hints of, um, whether it's through depression, alcoholism, um, isolation, lateral violence in a community, these are all there. Um, and there's also the beautiful side. So I think my book, you know, is 
is not a rosy picture of you know the Tibetan exile experience. There is love, a lot of love. There is beauty. There is laughter, but a lot of it is quite dark. And so I wanted to talk about these things because I felt like it was something that I hadn't explored myself that much. And that was slow process of me having to challenge myself continuously, um, seeing like if a character, for instance, Lamo, the main character who kind of comes out throughout the novel. At first I, I wrote her as a, a sort of a, a more perfect person um, than perhaps I should have. She was just like a good young girl. And my friend Vicky, who's also a writer, she, she read it. Uh, she was the first reader and she said, you know, Lamo seems like a real person. She, I could see her existing, but you don't have to write a person who seems realistic. You know, you can go a little further. Like it's that, that one stereotype or that one image I have of a Tibetan girl or a Tibetan, that doesn't have to be fulfilled here. And so that's when I began to free myself to really um, make Lamo a little bit funny, make her a little strange, make her jealous make her bad, behave badly at times. And all of these things allowed me to actually understand her better as a character. And I think within that, I began to understand her trauma as a more complicated thing rather than a single story or a single idea of, of her suffering. Um, you know, as much as possible, I'm trying to make each character complex as, as I can as without a single sentence that wraps them up. So, um, and that required a lot of slow thinking and writing and rewriting and trying to understand who these are. By the end, they feel like real people and it feels like inevitable that that's who they are and they've always been there and I've just been too dumb to like see who they are and it took me 12 years to understand who they are. Yeah, it is a really, really slow process and a lot of that has to do with my own internal hangups and how I was raised and sort of expectations about uh, what kinds of stories are told about people like us and what kinds of stories are not told about people like us. You did an amazing job of bringing back Joala Kell in the 60s. Thank you. I felt like I was there at times. Yeah, it was lovely. Um, I found your book to be beautiful and powerful and important. And you made, you certainly made them seem like real people to me. I thought at some point I have met every character in my life. And I, I like, I've met all these people at one point or another. So I, I really was greatly touched by your book. And um, you've talked about the sense of responsibility you have to the members of the Tibetan community who've lived this experience. But I'm wondering how you balance the needs of the various other audiences, those that know something about Tibetan history and culture, and that those that have never have no knowledge or incomplete or, you know, misinformation about Tibetan community and refugees and history. Yeah, thank you, Leslie. Um, yeah, I, I really try to be as uh, directed toward Tibetan readers as possible um, for multiple reasons. One, I think that if a text is directed toward a non-community member, like somebody outside of that community, it it's, it's almost apparent, you can kind of see that it's like a, has like a single political message almost, like it's a statement. And then I don't think that it's doing what literature can and should and is capable of doing, which is to provide a much more complex perspective. 
you know, it shouldn't be that easy single message or statement that I want to make toward a non-Tibetan audience. It has to be a world in itself that I build that has to resonate with the people who might inhabit that world, let's say. Like, imagine if Dolma could read this book or if Amo could read this book. Would this resonate? That, like, that, that's the kind of metric that I set up for myself or is the kind of expectation I have. Uh, of works that I enjoy or that respect. Um, so Toni Morrison is a writer that I keep in mind because she, you know, her works are speaking first and foremost to her community. There is a great deal of complexity and layering and texture in her writing that I, as a as a somebody who's not black or American um, from that community, would I wouldn't understand essentially, you know. Um, and yet there's enough there um, that I can understand as like, that's the, the beauty of her work. In a sense, one of my teachers talked about this idea as like a series of concentric circles. And at the very center is the audience you're really, really trying to talk to. And then as you go out, the concentric circle gets bigger and bigger. So of course I want anybody who wants to read the work to be able to cling on to something, to understand it. Uh, I'm not writing um, in language or in a way that is like, intentionally difficult to access. The book, I think, is actually quite easy to access. Um, the language is quite simple, I'd say, not you know, extremely literary in that sense. And yet the complexity comes from the characters, from the world, from the ideas, not from the language um, and not from the plot. You know, somebody far out in my concentric circles could still understand it, but the closer you get to the center, which is like, I guess somebody like Dolma, She's like right at the center of my circle. Like I want her to understand the most about this book. For her to read it in English, she would be like, yes, I get it. I, I see things in here that some others might not see. And so the book should serve all of these audiences at once. That's sort of my goal uh, when I'm revising and when I'm thinking and I'm keeping all of those uh, potential audiences in mind. Again, like you just never know who's gonna connect or resonate with what work. And there are going to be people, and I've heard messages from people who are not Tibetan, not my age, not, you know, like completely different and really resonated with the work because their life experience, their, you know, personal family histories or whatever. Um, and so then that's, that's wonderful. And that's also, I think that that shows that literature isn't just about like, I guess, like demographics or like identity alone. Um, if, if it's working for anybody, um, then that's that's all you can hope for. Well, thank you. I, I think the book is extremely accessible to anybody who um, who picks it up. Um, not simple at all, and I um, but accessible. And thank you for writing it because I think it's a beautiful and important story. And I'm going to pass it to Nadakla. Um So I have to say, when I was reading this book, I was really struck by the way you created the characters and like the world building, but like specifically the characters. And I have to ask about Lamu and Thanky because I feel like they have a very interesting relationship, like a very beautiful relationship. And I feel like a lot of people could definitely see themselves if they have like an older sibling or a younger sibling, but also they're like unique in their own ways too. So I was just gonna ask about how, how we should understand the relationship between them and especially during periods of tension. For example, when Thinky gets to go to Delhi and, you know, it's pretty undeniable that Lamu feels a little jealous about it. And, you know, so 
how should we understand them in periods of tension and individually and then together and also in a broader sense how do they represent the Tibetan experience because I feel like they both represent different things and different like burdens that they have to carry. Yeah, thank you. Um, I actually think a lot of what I did when I wrote this book was at the subconscious level and I didn't really know why I did what I did um, until it was done and somebody pointed it out like, oh, this is, I see this aspect or this thing that you always talk about or are interested in. I see that in these characters. So one of the things I'm, I have like long been interested in or grappled with is, I guess, just poverty in, in our community and how scarce opportunities are for some people, uh, especially people who live in camps and uh, still don't have papers and are citizens of no country. And they could be inherently brilliant. Um, they could have the talent. They could have people see um, their capacity to to excel in a certain space, uh, like school, for instance, like Tanki does in the very beginning. And yet her, her conditions in life are such that uh, she suffers a great deal because of her potential. You know, she goes to India, she's sort of the hope of the camp and people think, oh, she's going to be someone and she's gonna do something great. And when she leaves that sort of small world of the camp, she goes to Delhi and she goes to Canada she recognizes how how much external circumstances have a bearing on your personal fate, that your your own effort, as great as it may be, your own potential, as great as it may be, does come up against structural conditions, and 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 that can mean greater pain than anybody in the camp who remained behind could understand, in a sense. And so I wanted a way to think about that and to think about also just like just in inequality, right? Like if we're on this Zoom call, we're already quite fortunate uh, in, among our community. And, you know, we're, there's just so many material conditions um, that are different in our lives, perhaps, um, than some Tibetans who are living still in camps or, you know, right now working in a restaurant or something so that inequality is something that i wanted to explore through these two sisters um pamo is somebody who from the very beginning isn't encouraged to study she's encouraged to basically be a caretaker to her little sister and so that's what she does and i think that that's really uh what i've seen for a lot of tibetan people like that expectation is placed on them to caretake for each other for um, their siblings or for their parents, um, if they, you know, leave and go to the West, their their main duty in life is to take care and and provide. And so they sacrifice a lot of personal ambitions to do that. But I think what's beautiful here is like the recognition that, um, um, and I think Doma comes to this near the end, which is that like this, there isn't a single uh, conception of success that can like work for everybody. Um, and Doma has been sort of laboring under this idea of this like uh, the Western model of like uh, achievement and knowledge as a thing you gain, as a thing you hold, as a thing you utilize uh, in spaces of power. He begins to sort of question all of these things and recognizes that there are other forms of knowledge, other forms of wisdom that perhaps 
cannot even be understood through a Western framework um, that her mother or her ancestors or her, you know, people in the camp understood. And so the, 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 the book, in a sense, grapples with uh, the question of like, what does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to uh, define your own your own vision of success or uh, of, of being a you know successful person, and also to recognize the the, the vast gulf between personal effort and um, the, the material conditions we face uh, as part of a refugee community, as part of a community of displaced peoples living you know outside of our homeland that is occupied. These characters are essentially a way for me to grapple with all of these questions that I've found really in my own life, you know, like as somebody who's had a lot of benefits and been able to study whatever I wanted and pursue whatever I wanted to do in my life, which is a is a great privilege that uh, a lot of people around me did not have. Um, and so that's essentially how I understand uh, these relationships uh, or these characters as spaces or as containers for my own personal grapplings. Thank you. Um, and I just wanted to say that I think the book also helps a lot of other people deal with their own personal grapplings as well. Thank you, Tsurna, for taking our discussion. Thank you to all our uh, readers uh, for joining us uh, for the questions. I have a few um, audience questions for you, Tsurna. I have a lot of questions here. First, it says, in your research for the book, uh, what impact and role do you think Buddhism played for Tibetans during this harsh and difficult period that you um, cover in the book? I think it played a really important role. Uh, I think it's really difficult to separate Buddhism, but also just faith in general, like whether they're from the Bon tradition or whatever. Really difficult to separate spirituality and faith from the Tibetan story of the 1950s and onwards the story of survival of a, of a refugee community that literally had nothing and pretty much no world power supporting us, uh, except for like India and Nepal, like allowing us to stay, essentially. Um, and how does a people survive that kind of loss and deprivation and uh, degradation? I, I think faith had a huge role to play. And part of what I found so interesting was how rebuilding in, in exile was also a, a about rebuilding sort of the libraries and monasteries and like basically rebuilding uh, a Buddhist world outside of Tibet. Um, there was a story of two young monks who that I came across in my research. Uh, they were traveling around India and Nepal looking for texts that might've survived, like people might've brought Buddhist texts out and they were trying to rebuild a Buddhist library in exile because things had been lost, right? And monasteries bombed and all of these things. Um, and, you know, and now, like many decades later, it's quite staggering to think uh, of how much has survived. And I, I think uh, having, having something like faith is uh, focuses one's attention and also provides sustenance. And I've seen that in so many difficult moments of people's lives. Like, you know, for instance, the book has uh, one of the characters dies and there's this long Actually, many of the characters died, but there's every time they die, there's all of these traditions and rituals that are Buddhist um, uh, to, that we that we have to take care of their passage through the bardo, and that becomes a way for people to process 
this loss to do something with their hands, to do something with their bodies while they're dealing with the loss. And I think that's, I don't know how people do it without that, honestly. I have also a, a few um, comments here. I didn't realize, but um, we have an all ladies panel here today. <laughs> but um, here's this, Tirin uh, Nundula says, I'm inspired to see younger Tibetans taking the struggle further in academic front. We do need more historians, researchers, writers, lawyers, uh, then Gorshit answers, he says, you see, young Tibetan women are filling that gap. It says, thank you to Tsuringa and all the others here. So thank you all. I have another, Connie Orchid, uh, it's an ICT member. She says, your novel is stunning. Thank you for this gift. Women are the anchors in your book, the ones with exceptional strength and moral conviction. Is this a commentary about the Tibetan experience in particular, especially in the refugee community, or is it a more global message for about women? I find one of the most powerful things about your book to be the interweaving of such powerful topics, both universal and specific to the Tibetan experience. I... I, I don't think I was trying to make a, at least not consciously, not trying to make a comment about women universally. I was really thinking about the Tibetan women that I grew up around who really quietly hold a community down <laughs> and hold it together. Um, and that's not to say anything about Tibetan men because I feel like there, there are really uh, admirable and complex Tibetan men even if they're minor characters in my book. But I think Tibetan men have their own particular struggles. And I think a lot of the Tibetan men that I grew up around had quite short lives because of the difficulty of their lives and the expectations laid upon them. And I don't know, all kinds of challenges that are, you know, have to do with a patriarchal society that also uh, we happen to have, you know? Um, anyway, so Tibetan women are, um, are the people that I grew up around that I find fascinating that I wanted to write about. And um, that's what I did. <laughs> but I also think that, uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything essential about Tibetan people that is separate from other people. I don't, I don't believe in that. I think Tibetan people are just human beings like anybody else. So it doesn't surprise me if it connects with another group uh, of women, because I think we're fundamentally the same. Uh, we just have had a very specific history. I agree. I also grew up alone with a lot of strong women around me. Our time is up now, but I still want to ask you one last question. I heard you might have already started working on a next project. Can you tell us uh, about uh, that? I've got a couple of ideas right now that I'm playing with. None that are like worth <laughs> talking about too deeply right now. Um, I'm sort of uh, I'm trying to be more playful right now, I guess. I'm writing little things here and there and seeing where this goes. Being in a project, a single project for like over a decade, um, there was a there was a certain kind of like discipline that kicked in where like every day after I finished my day job, I would write for four hours before dinner. Like I always knew what I was doing. And, um, and that also meant that I really didn't do anything else. You know, like people would ask for short stories and I was like, no. <laughs> it's just that's one thing that I'm working on. Um, so now I'm, 
finding myself in a space where I'm like, oh, I don't have that thing with, that I always had. So I kind of miss that. At the same time, oh, I should enjoy this freedom to experiment. And I do feel like a beginner again, um, which if there's anybody here who wants to be a writer, you know, that's a perpetual feeling. And I feel that right now as I'm playing with new potential works that I've got, I'm feeling like that same fear and doubt <laughs> that I felt when I began this project and I guess throughout. So, uh, but I'm trying to be comfortable and really just enjoy the, the freedom that I have right now. Well, I think you should enjoy the freedom now and you should enjoy and let yourself free from, because I would imagine you have a lot of pressure now that with the success of this book, the next one, we're all waiting. So we have so many of us waiting what your next writing is going to be. Um, I, I, sorry, I have to say there are so many amazing young Tibetan writers that I've come across the last few months. So, you know, we're all sharing this. <laughs> this what's next? I'm curious to see what comes from them. Yes, with your generation of Tibetans, we're looking for in, in, in art, in film, in all the creative fields. Um, we see more and more of you, and it's such a um, pleasure and makes us um, happy to see all of you grow in so many different ways. And so with that, um, our time is up, and I want to thank Ashton and Leslie La from my office, and most of all, Cyrilla, for you for joining us here. For our viewers, I, the, the book is available in all major book uh, outlets. Please get a copy and enjoy reading. And as Cyrilla mentioned, there are also many more other Tibetan writers. There is also a Black Neck Books is on Instagram and Facebook, and they um, have put together many uh, writings of Tibetan authors, so you might like to check that out. I hope you will all join us again next month for another episode of Tibet Talks. Um, you can go to our website at safetibet.org and sign up for alerts, so uh, you will get the next alert on our next talk, as well as um, updated information on what's happening, news uh, from inside Tibet, and how you can be involved to make a difference. Um, thank you all, and see you next month. Suchana. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org slash pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org slash support. Thank you, and see you next time on Tibet Talks.